If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 22, and we'll be there in a jiffy. We'll read together, but as we do, and in preparation of that, I was thinking, uh, I grew up not at the beach, but pretty consistently going to the beach. So swimming in the ocean was never a big deal for me. Now, when I was in the Marine Corps, Kathy and I lived in uh, in North Carolina. We really didn't go to the beach all that much. Occasionally some, but not as much there. That's where my first uh, firstborn son was born, in North Carolina. And we moved back to California, and, and we had uh, two more children there. We would spend our summers... Uh, two weeks every year since we were able at the beach and we camp at the beach and we swim in the water and it was kind of a joy as I became an old man because when I became an old man I found myself swimming less and watching more and watching uh, watching the boys uh, surfing and 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 having fun but I remember when they were little you go to the beach and uh it's kind of parallels life in some ways. You know, above the surface, everything looks pretty. But there's all kind of things under that you can't see. They have these things that sting you. They're called stingrays in California. And they will jab a stinger as deep in your toe as they can possibly get it. It don't matter how big they are. And it hurts like the dickens. And they got these little in, semi-invisible things, jellyfish. They swim around in the water. You only find them right before they stick to your chest. Well, that's usually when I found them, right before they stick to your chest. I remember telling the boys, you know, when they're little, okay, guys, we're going to go swimming. But, you know, back in those days, you want to tell them, you know, what's in store. Oh, you watch out for stingrays. So when you walk, shuffle your feet so they come up in front of you and don't sting you. And, and if you see anything that looks like a sandwich bag floating in water, get away from it. And now let's go have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we take them out, you know, in the shallow water. They never really wanted to go out too deep in the beginning. You remember, run out, get chased back by waves. Maybe you never saw it, but it's pretty cool. And, and I'd be able to tell them, uh, there's a lot of stuff around and a lot of things under the water. Maybe we can't see them all, but I'm with you. Now, I can't control what stings you or what gets you, but I'm with you. Nothing going to happen to you while I'm here. You get stung, I'll take care of you. You get bit by a jellyfish, I'll cure it. I'll show you. It'll be okay. A lot of times in life, it's the same way. You know, God is with us. God's presence with us never it means that something won't bite. That things won't sting. That stuff doesn't happen in life. But it does mean, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, no matter what. I'm here. I'm with you and I have your back. Here's what we see with Paul. Paul, we've been talking about this attitude he had, a 
resolute attitude. I have got to go do what God's called me to do. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced the, the concept of having a burden on your heart. Some people that you love, someone you love so much that you just, you want to tell them. Sometimes we battle with that concept within us. We battle with that concept because, well, sometimes the, the, the devil lies to us. And he says, what's well, more loving if you don't confront them? It's more loving if you don't say anything. It's, it's probably better if you just be quiet and, and you just enjoy your time together. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit. God wants us to move forward on the people whom we love to share the love of Christ. There's things more important in life than the comfort of that moment or the fear of what are they going to say or how are they going to look. And there's worse things to have to deal with in your life than those feelings. You ever had somebody you just really love? For Paul, it was a whole group of people. He loved the people from his country. For, for David and Anne, it's Romania. For Andy, it's Scotland. For others, it may be brothers or sisters, neighbors, friends, family. But there's always people in the life of every believer where God has placed this, this love in your heart that needs to be expressed. And the way it's expressed is when you share with them Jesus Christ. Or, you can believe the lies of the devil and be quiet. The choice is yours. My grandma was that kind of person for me. I love my grandma. Grandma raised me. My mom and dad both worked, so I grew up at grandma's house. Grandma had a pool. I don't ever remember not being in the water. As far as I know, there was never a day I didn't know how to swim. I think I was swimming from babyhood all the way through. Grandma took care of me, and I love Grandma. I come to know Jesus pretty early in my life and to to, uh, experience His love and and see the, the changes He was working in my family when I was a young man. And so I always wondered about Grandma. Grandma, I wonder how... How grandma is. Does grandma know Jesus? You know, and occasionally she come to church with us and, and do the thing. But I never asked. I never asked. I talked to her sometimes about the Lord and we'd share some things. Maybe we heard at church. But I never just had that conversation with her. But I was a kid. Well, you know, you don't stay a kid forever, right? So later on, I was an adult. And after all the other stuff that, that happened in Kathy and my life, we come back home and, and I was looking and walking with the Lord and doing the things God wanted to do. And I would tell myself all the time, I'm gonna, this will be the day. Today I'll tell Grandma. I'm going to talk to Grandma today. Grandma moved to Las Vegas. I'm going to call Grandma tomorrow. We'll have that talk. And the phone rang. And Grandma was gone. And the conversation never happened. Now, I don't know. I'm not telling you grandma's saved or grandma's not. What I'm telling you is I didn't do, I didn't speak forth the love that was in my heart. Oh, my grandma knew I loved her. But that's awful small in comparison to understanding and knowing the love of Christ. We have 
opportunities to learn from Paul, that resolute spirit that said, I've got a burden in my heart. I love these people. I'm going to go tell them. And I don't care what happens when I tell them. They didn't like it. They yelled at him. They beat him. They arrested him. They imprisoned him. They tried to kill him multiple times. But it didn't matter because he loved them. And he wouldn't stop telling them. He wouldn't stop sharing. We pick it up today in Acts chapter 22 where Paul just went in to talk to the people in the temple and they tried to tear him to pieces. And the scripture tells us, we pick it up in uh, in chapter 22, um, verse 23. It says, Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, they threw dust in the air. So the commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks and said he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, Take care what you do. This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me true, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum of money I purchased my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a citizen. And immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid when he found out he was Roman because he had bound him. So the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias, he commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You will not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the party arose and protested saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul be pulled into pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem... So you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. 
Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. We are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him, asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it you have come to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath, They will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and told him, Tell no one what you have revealed uh, until that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on. And bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him I brought him before their council. I found out he was accused concerning questions of their law. But had had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. When it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. When the soldiers, as they brought, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him, and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we just open up the Scriptures, God, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you might help us Father, to, to develop that heart, the heart of love, that we would be resolute in our commitment, in our faithfulness to You, Lord Jesus, to share with the people whom we love, that nothing would stop us if we stand before the hordes of darkness and we give witness to light. God, we pray that You would just instill in us, Father, that Spirit, that we would have eyes and ears, to see and hear, Father, what Your Word declares as we give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick it up in the beginning at chapter 22. Paul had just had a trial of his countrymen there in the temple. And immediately he moves from that trial. You guys have trials in your life, don't you? You see, the, the Bible tells us there will be trials, right? Don't be afraid of that fiery trial that's coming. God's with you. 
looks still on top and pretty, the sunset down over the water. But underneath, there's some things that sting. Some stuff that hurts. The fiery trials come. The first one was a trial of his countrymen. The second one was a trial of scourging. This is how Rome solved all their unsolved crimes. It's really pretty simple. Here you have Commander Lysias. He's seen Paul in a riot. He doesn't understand why the riot started. So he said, Paul, I don't know what's going on. Paul said, let me talk to him. So hoping he's going to learn something, he lets Paul talk to him. Paul shares his testimony before all the people in the temple. And they're all listening. But as soon as he says the word Gentiles, they all freak out again and try to tear him apart. The commander runs down, takes him out, brings him up to the barracks and says, All right, I don't know what's going on, but here's how we'll settle it. Scourge him. We'll have a trial by scourging. On the scourging, what they would do is they would tie him with thongs. Usually with his back exposed, laying his chest over um, a, a piece of wood. Not like a log on the ground, but like a stake sticking up out of the ground and you'd be tied down with your chest on it. Most likely stone, like a round stone, like the trunk of a tree. Strap down on that, strip you naked, they take the cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was several strips of leather on the ends of that were pieces of rock and lead, different pieces of metal, jagged edges. And what they would do is they would bring that flagellum down on the back of the, the person who was being scourged and it would stick. And then they rip it out. And then they ask him, what did you do? He may say nothing for one or two, but they always confess. And so he said, let's do a trial by scourging. Beat him. We'll find out what he did. So they're taking the thongs and they're tying them up, right? We read it. They're tying them up. But what I see in, in Paul in this place is this utter calm. Now, we can get disassociated from the text. So remember, he's already been beaten by a mob twice. Same day. So he's, he's already been beaten, big riot twice. Now they're tying him up to scourge him. And as they tie him up to scourge him, look what Paul says. He says in, uh, in, in verse 25, As they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So they had rules in Rome. If you were a citizen... You had special rights. If you weren't a citizen, you didn't have no rights. So, when they bring him to scourge him, they just assume he's another Jewish guy from Jerusalem. They don't know nothing about Paul. They bring him up, they tie him up, they're preparing the flagellum, and Paul looks over at him calmly and says, Hey guys, I was just wondering, is it is it okay for you to beat a Roman citizen uncondemned? Now, that that puts the fear in their hearts. Two reasons. There's a couple of rules. One, you could not beat a Roman citizen into a confession. And two, you could not even bind him. You couldn't tie him up. You couldn't put him in prison. He was, for all intents and purposes, like today, innocent until proven guilty. So he declares that he's a Roman citizen. Look what happens in verse 26. The centurion heard that. Immediately, everything stops. They go to the commander, and they say, you better be careful, this guy's a Roman citizen. He has rights. And so the commander came and said, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yeah, I'm a Roman. 
Now, some people would say, well, what do you have, ID on them? No, they didn't have ID. They would have paperwork, but that paperwork would be kept with their family, probably uh, wherever the family kept all their documents and title deeds for the property that they might have. That's where his citizenship paper would be. So why would he just take his word for it? Well, because if he told the truth, and the centurion beat him or kept him bound, he would be crucified. Being crucified was an incredible motivation for guys to be careful about what they did. So when he said, Roman, I'm a Roman, he's going to take his word for it. In fact, he's going to ask him, how did you become a citizen? I bought my citizenship. How did you get to be a citizen? And Paul said, I was born. I was born a citizen. He's free-born Roman. Means citizenship happened in his family some generations earlier. We know they came from Cilicia, from Tarsus of Cilicia, Paul of Tarsus. In order to be in Tarsus, he had to have 500 drachma of gold. That's a very wealthy sum of money. So we know he was wealthy. He came from a very astute family. And he was born a Roman citizen. He was raised in Jerusalem, but he was a Roman citizen. And as such, he had rights. And one of those was they could not give him a trial by scourging. There are a lot of times, though, Paul was beaten. Wasn't he? Paul says, five times I was beaten with rods. You remember the the story of Philippi. He was beaten at Philippi and put in the stocks. Why didn't he say anything then? He was a Roman then, too. For whatever reason, Paul understood that greater opportunity would come through. And so he received the beating. In Philippi, he told him afterwards. They were falling over themselves in Philippi to try to help the guy out. Oh, sorry, we didn't know. Sometimes he said something, sometimes he didn't. The Spirit led him to say something this time because, well, let's face it, scourging will kill a man. More men died of scourging than died of crucifixion. So, the Lord leads him. He he says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And so they stop the scourging. But I want you to think about Commander Lysias. He wants to know why is this guy here. Look what's happened. Commander Lysias one day is walking outside, looking over the Antonio Fortress. He looks over the side and he sees a bunch of people in the temple beating a dude up. He thinks, this isn't good. Something's going on. So he calls his soldiers. They go out there and they grab this guy and they bring him inside. And they say, hey, are you some kind of terrorist or something? And he says, no, 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 I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, let me go back in and let me talk to him. I think I can calm him down. So the commander, he don't know what's going on. He lets him go back out there. He speaks to him for a few minutes. He says a word that the commander doesn't understand because he's speaking in Hebrew. And as he, as he shares it, all of a sudden the people erupt, they get angry, they try to kill him again. So the commander whisks him away, brings him in and says, look, I'm going to find out what's going on. We'll scourge him. But before he can scourge him, Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. So he can't scourge him. Commander Lysias has no idea what is the deal. What's going on? We don't, I don't understand. Why are these people so mad at you? Why do these people want to kill you? So he says, okay, bring the Sanhedrin together. So the next trial, trial by scourging is over. Now it's the trial by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the same group that crucified Christ. The Sanhedrin has had four, count them, four 
different times where disciples or Christ himself stood before them to share the truth with them. This is the fifth time. This is the last time. Another body will not stand before them again to give them any um, testimony to what Christ has done in their life. The Sanhedrin is gathered together, prepared to hear. Commander Lysias is there. He wants to know, what is all, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand what's going on. So he brings down Paul and sets them, sets him before them. Chapter 23, Paul begins and he says, Then Paul looked earnestly at the council and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That word lived in the Greek means that he has lived as a good citizen of the nation in which he stands. So when he says, I have lived in good conscience, what he is declaring is, I am innocent. It's the same thing as if you were in a court of law and you're standing before the judge and the judge says, how do you plea? And you stand up and say, Your Honor, I plead innocent. I'm innocent of the charges. And you sit back down. Same exact words. Just sounds a little bit different for us. You know, this many years removed. But this is how it was said. So he declares his innocence. You remember what he was charged with? He was charged with bringing a Gentile into the temple. He didn't do it. I'm innocent. I have lived in good conscience until this day. And then the judge, I want you to picture it. Put yourself in our courtroom today. Then the judge stands up and looks over at the bailiff and says, Go hit that guy in the mouth. And the bailiff walks over to the guy and socks him dead in the mouth. That's exactly what the next verse says. The high priest was looking down, right? And he said to those who stood by him, Strike him on the mouth. So, he struck him on the mouth. And Paul said to them, said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I don't think he was very happy about it. Well, put yourself there. You got a ticket and you're in court. And the judge says, how do you plea? And for the first time in your life, you actually weren't guilty. And so you say, well, your honor, I'm innocent. And the bailiff walks over and just socks you in the mouth. What are you going to say? Thank you, Your Honor. Can I have another? What? He punches him in the mouth. Now, a lot of people at this point say Paul lost it and he begins to revile the, the high priest and say things he shouldn't have said. I'm not sure that's, that's accurate, at least not in the way that I read the text. And I'll tell you why. The initial response, the person he's calling a whitewashed wall, is the dude who hit him. Well, Jackie, how do you know that? Well, let's do an experiment. Let's all get together. George, Andy, and me. I'm sitting in there and I'm going to talk to George. George looks over to Andy and says, Andy, punch him in the mouth. And Andy reaches over and punches me in the mouth. I am not going to then turn all my attention to George. And say, George, what are you doing? No. First, I'm going to turn to the dude who socked me in the mouth. I'll be with you in a minute. i got to talk to Andy first. When the scripture says he turned to him, I, I see him turning to the guy who just hit him. He just got smacked in the mouth. He turns to him and he says to him, you whitewashed wall. Then he turns to the judge. The judge would have been the high priest. And he says to the high priest, you sit to judge me according to the law. 
Do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? What the judge had just done is break the law, right? Same thing in our courtroom, isn't it? What do you think? You ever seen that happen in court? Not very often. So the same exact thing taking place in this court. Now, he's, he goes in and says, I'm innocent. A guy hits him in the mouth. He says to him, you whitewashed wall, you strike me, God's going to strike you. He, he turns and he says to the, to the judge, look, you're here to judge me, but you're breaking the law. He was breaking the law. Then those who stood by said, do you revile the high priest? Now about this time in commentaries, commentaries say what Paul said, no, I didn't know he was a high priest. And so they say what Paul's saying is he didn't recognize him. Okay, 18 years earlier, these same guys gave Paul letters to kill the Christians. They hired him as a hitman to go all throughout the land and kill Christians, arrest them, stop this subversive religious sect from getting started. Very much like the mob would do. Exactly how they would have done it. So if you're trying to tell me Paul doesn't know who this guy is. Paul who was raised under Gamaliel. Who's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Who has studied the law. Who grew up with them. That he wouldn't look across and know in the courtroom of the Sanhedrin who the high priest was. No, he knew him. He knew who he was. That's not what he was saying. In the Greek there are two words to know. Gnosko and oida. Gnosko means to know experientially. It means I, I know you, like I have had experience with you. That's not the word that's used here. The other word is to know reflectively. That means to know you by what you do. And that's the word that's used here. What Paul is saying is, by what he just did, I didn't know he was a high priest. He's a high priest, the most corrupt high priest in the history of the Jews, Ananias. He stole the tithe from every priest in the temple for himself. He ran the temple just like a godfather would run the mob. That's exactly how he did business. When people he didn't like stood up against him, he killed them. He had done it to a couple of Christians from Paul's time and since. So now you have Paul. Standing before him. Now, i got to get you guys... Remember I told you you can get disassociated from the text. So the text. Here's Commander Lysias. He just wants to know what's going on. Paul comes into the courtroom. He says, I'm innocent. The bailiff walks over. Socks him in the mouth. Paul says something to the bailiff. Man, you whitewashed, you whitewashed wall. God's going to strike you. And then he, 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 he says kind of ironically to the, to the judge. I didn't even know you were the judge. Because you're acting like this. Now about that time, the judge starts to yelling, and the people over there start to yelling, and the people over here start to yelling. There's a lot of chaos going on, right? You guys with me? A lot of hollering happening. A lot of things going on. So, it says, But when Paul per- perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out. You see that phrase, he cried out? That phrase means he continually shouted these words. So it's important that you understand what's happening around. Chaos is going around. People are hollering. Somebody's already been hit. There's yelling going on over here. Yelling going on over there. Paul looks around at the people and he realizes, i got two groups of people here. Sadducees and Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. 
So naturally, his views would line up with the Pharisees. So he begins to speak. He cries, shouts. And he shouts over and over again so that they'll hear him because of all the yelling that's going on. It says, he cried out on the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. The word hope with a definite article in it is a point directly to the Messiah. I am being judged because of the hope, the, mas- the, the mas- Messiah, the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. He says, I'm being tried because of my view on the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. His view on the Messiah was that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Jesus was the Christ, that they killed him and he rose again. Is Paul lying? No, he's telling them exactly what's going on. He says, I, I am tr- on trial, not because I brought a Greek guy into the temple or a Gentile into the temple, but I'm on trial because of the hope, Messiah, and the resurrection from the dead. They, they, I, I say he was killed and he rose again. That's what he's telling them. So it says, when he had said this, <clears throat> a dissension arose between the fa- the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's only so many, so much time in a day. And i got a lot of places to go. My tongue needs to just come along with me. <clears throat> okay. Pharisees and Sadducees. The assemblies divided. Because the Sadducees didn't believe in the Word. They didn't believe in the Bible. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All the rest of the Bible and the entire Old Testament was written and there used in that day. Jesus spoke from the Septuagint. was translated in 270 B.C., In 270 B.C., the Bible, the Old Testament was there, all done. So, he's they they wouldn't accept it, though. They only believed the first five books. And in those first five books, have you ever read those first five books, by the way? Is there any angels in them? Oh, yeah. Right? You guys remember angels in the first five books? At creation, uh, how about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? There was an angel thing there. And Abraham, angels came and visited Abraham, right? So was there was there a resurrection of the dead? Was there ever dead people that were raised? Yeah, there was some dead people raised in the first five books. Man, there's some some of that going on. So basically, they believed the first five books, but they didn't believe in anything they said. So they were what you might call the liberals today. They they were they were Sadducee in name, but they really didn't care about God. They didn't believe that God worked in our lives today. He had anything to do with us? Man's left on his own. Got to find his own way. And, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow I'm going to die. And the high priest was like a mob boss. That's how they did things. Then you have the Pharisees. Pharisees are the guys we often talk about. Because the Pharisees were legalists. And we give them a hard time. But listen, I know for a fact throughout the scripture, the Bible talks in many places of Pharisees getting saved. I don't know of any place where it talks about a Sadducee getting saved. Pharisees were ready because they at least believed in the Bible. So if you could show them in the Bible, they'd come along. You guys know that guy, Nicodemus, right? Nick at night, he came, John chapter 3, to, to Jesus at night and asked him some questions, right? You remember John 3.16? Everybody knows that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's Jesus' answer to Nicodemus. So he was a Pharisee who believed um, Joseph of Arimathea probably was a Pharisee who believed, and others, the Bible talks about it in the book of Acts. So, these two groups. 
So Paul says something, and he loves them, and he wants whoever can be saved to be saved, but he recognizes that Pharisees at least got an opportunity, because he may listen to what he has to say. So he shouts this out, this whole fight takes place, and it says in verse 9, then there arose a loud outcry. Um, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the gospel of Luke. It's not a trick question, that's just how it is. He wrote it. He is the king of understatement. All throughout it, when remember when Paul and Barnabas had a fight and he said there was no small dissension? You guys know what I'm talking about? He constantly says things like that. He, he, he kind of plays a lot of that stuff down. But here, he doesn't play this down. He uses the strongest language in both books for this moment. There was a loud outcry. Look, he's saying people are freaking out. They're yelling and screaming and getting angry at each other. But the good news for Paul is, originally they were mad at him. Now they're mad at each other. So they're yelling at each other. And so he gets a little bit of a, of a break, at least for a minute, while they're screaming at each other. So there was a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested and said, Listen to what they say. We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Those are the same words Gamaliel, his teacher, spoke about the disciples before Paul ever got saved. When, when they were asking about, what should we do with this new sect? He said, I don't know. Let's wait and see if this is of God. Well, here, they're, they're kind of saying the same thing. Hey, man, we don't know. Maybe he's got a revelation. Maybe we should listen to this guy. That's what the Pharisees are saying. The Sadducees, that's the mob boss, they're not going to have anything to do with it. They want this guy dead. They don't care about the truth. They want him dead. So the fight begins. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul would be pulled into pieces, sent the soldiers in and they took him by force. So you got to see what's going on. This is not like a courthouse like when you watch O.J. Simpson trial. Nobody watched O.J. Simpson trial? Was I the only one still alive when that happened? Okay, so there was this huge chaos. And they see Paul. You see the Pharisees on one hand and the Sadducees on the other. And they're tugging. One pulling one way, one pulling the other way. They're pretty sure the commander thinks they're going to kill him. They're going to pull him apart. Paul's had a bad couple of days, right? Are you with me? Beaten, almost scourged. Now facing the trial of the Sanhedrin. It erupts into a riot again. Not only is Paul having a bad day, Commander Lysias, what, he does not understand what's going on. Why are these guys do, acting like this? He don't get it. He doesn't get it at all. Look what it says. It says, so he goes in, they take him by force, and they bring him into the barracks. And they keep him safe. And then he has his next trial. So we got the trial... Of his countrymen, we got the trial of scourging, we got the trial of the Sanhedrin, now we got the trial of discouragement. Any of you who ever has a love in your heart for somebody who doesn't know Jesus will know the trial of discouragement. And when the trial of discouragement comes for you, I hope you experience the same things Paul did. Because the very first thing he experienced was that God's presence brings comfort. It says, and the Lord stood by him.
Lo, I am with you always, even unto the, unto the end of the age. God was with him. There he is in the dark, all alone. Sometimes this is what comforts me about Pastor Saeed, because I can't be there for him. I can pray for him, and, and I can hope for him, and I can write letters, and I can do all the stuff I can do on this end. But I know God's Word says that God's with him. He said, I'll go with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. Lo, I am with you. Just like I told my kids going out to the water, I'm with you. It won't keep it from stinging. It won't keep you from getting knocked down by a wave. But I'm right there. And that meant comfort. God's presence. There's three things very specifically in the, in the trial of discouragement. The first one, God's presence brings comfort. The Lord stood by him. It reminds me of Rakshak and Benny. No VeggieTale fans in the crew? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You heard of them? Uh, Hananiah, Azael, and Mishael. That's the Hebrew names. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three Hebrew youths who stood before a king defiant. The most powerful man in the universe stood before him defiant. Now look, I don't have a hard time understanding how teenagers would stand defiant before an adult. That's not the miracle. The miracle is... They stood before the most powerful man in all the universe. And they said, O king, live forever. Our God is able to deliver us from your hands. But even if he won't, we're not bowing to your idol. Made the king so mad that he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than it had ever been before. I want you to think about that. This is not lame guys. They knew how to work metal and steel. So if they could melt steel so you could hammer it, how hot was the furnace? I'd say hot enough. The guys who were making the furnace seven times hotter died just for being in the vicinity of the fire. Then they come for them three Hebrew youths and they give them one more chance. You got one more chance to bow. Look, we're not going to bow. God can deliver us, but even if he won't, we won't bow. So they take him. The, the king says, throw him in the furnace. And they take him to the furnace. Now, I've always had this question. Uh, I will have it until I get to heaven. How'd they get in? If just being close to the furnace killed you, the soldiers, I'm thinking, got them to a point, just this side of the two dead bodies laying beside it, and said, um, would really help us out. If you guys would take the rest of this journey on your own. I don't know. They went into the fire. Then they come back to, to, to the king. And the king said, you get those boys in the fire? Yep, they're in the fire. <clears throat> good, good. Why are you still here? Well, they're walking around in it. They're what? Yeah, they're walking around in the fire. They're walking in the fire. I told you guys to make that fire hot. Oh, it's hot. There's one other thing. There's somebody with him, and he looks like the Son of God. Man. So then the king said, Go get him out and ask him nice. 
So he went and said, guys, come on out. Because they couldn't go in and get them, right? Come on out. And they walked out. Ropes all burned off. Things changed for Nebuchadnezzar. Things changed for him. God was with him in the fire. He's with us in the fire. He's with Paul in the fire. The first thing, God's presence brings comfort. God was with him. That's all he needed to be was with him. Paul would say in Acts 20, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Paul said, I'm not afraid of the fire, because God is with me. God's presence. Next thing we see is God's promise encourages. God's promise encourages. Look what the Lord said. Be of good cheer. Takes three English words to make one Greek word. The one Greek word is theros. It means take courage. What it really means is be resolute in the face of danger. Be resolute, immovable in the face of danger. So God says, take courage. And then he gives this promise. For as you have testified to the Jews, in the same way you have testified to the Jews, you will be my witness in Rome. This is not the end. I'll take care of you. God give him a promise. And the promise encourages. God's presence comforts. God's promise encourages. But now... Isaiah 43 says, Thus says the Lord who created you, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you pass through the water, I will be with you. Though the rivers and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned nor will the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. God's promise brings encouragement. In the trial of discouragement, he held on to God's presence and God's promise. Next, we have God's power. God's power. The last thing you say, Jackie, you're never going to finish the chapter, but it's easy now. This last part is all God's providential care. Did you not see it? You heard me when I read it, right? Okay, tell me how this would work. Forty guys get together and decide they're going to go on a hunger strike. They're not going to eat or drink until they can kill this guy. They're, going to, they're serious about killing him, is what they're saying. We're serious. Just so happens that Paul's sister's son hears him. What are the odds of that? I'd say that's stretching. That's stretching it. Paul's sister, did you know Paul had a sister? Not till today, did you? Did you know Paul's sister had a son? Nope, not till today. Paul's sister's son, the word used for he's a young man means that he was young. Pre-teens at the oldest, probably younger than that. Now Paul had open visitation, that's the way they would have, 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 have kept him. He wasn't actually in prison because he's a Roman citizen, anybody could come. So... His nephew comes to him and says, Uncle Paul, I just heard these guys say they're going to kill you. And I heard the entire plan. So he calls for a centurion. A centurion is a guy who's over a hundred soldiers. When's the last time in Rome you heard of a prisoner calling for a centurion and saying to the centurion, Hey, this kid uh, knows something about 
what people are trying to do to me, would you take him to the commander? And the centurion said, sure, sure. Come on, little one, let's go. This is Rome. Are you kidding me? That didn't happen. How many times did Roman soldiers pull a guy out of a, of a riot? More often, they would sit back and watch. It was their entertainment for today. The they didn't care if the guy was getting pulled apart, but this was different for some reason. Why? It's the power of God. It's providential care. God said, you're going to get to Rome. He's going to get to Rome, and nothing they can do is going to stop it. Nobody can stop it. If God wants you to go to Scotland, nobody can stop it. If God wants you to go to Romania, nobody can stop it. If God wants you to share with your brother or your sister, nobody can stop it but you. You have to be willing to go. Right? Once you've set that resolute spirit and you step off, you're ready. So they take the young man, this little boy, they take him to, to Commander Lysias. Commander Lysias believes him. Commander Lysias, after he believes him, tells him, don't tell anybody you told me. I don't want them to know that I know what you're going to do. So he says, go back. And then he calls two centurions. And he sets up a group of 200 foot soldiers, 70 uh, cavalry men on horses, and another 200 men with spears. That's 470 soldiers surrounding one man. They put that one man on a horse. When's the last time do you think Roman soldiers transported a prisoner and let him ride the horse? That's like saying, hey, we're going to go on this long walk all the way to Caesarea, but, you know, we're going to walk, but you ride the horse. That's not going to happen. How's that happen? It's a providential care of God. That's the power of God. We sometimes think the only way God works is through this incredible miracle, but, you know, every day we miss miracles happening right in front of us. You don't even know they're a miracle. We call them coincidences. Oh, imagine that. Gosh, you know, today I put on my pants, I reached my hand in my pocket, there's a $20 bill in the pocket and I needed gas. And I didn't have my wallet with me, but I had 20 bucks in my pocket. Wow, cool. What a coincidence. It's all how you want to look at it. So they surround him with soldiers. They take him all the way to Caesarea. Caesarea was a beach town on the Mediterranean. They put him in the Praetorium of Herod. I've been at the Praetorium of Herod. I've been in the area of Herod's palace. Praetorium would have been right alongside. Herod's palace is actually built out into the Mediterranean Ocean. So every window you look out has an ocean breeze blowing into your face. Very cool in the middle of the desert, but on the Mediterranean Ocean. Very slick, very nice. That's where they're taking him. That's the jail he's going to. When he says he's in prison, he's in prison, but that's how it works out. So he comes to that place. They bring him to Caesarea. They take him before Felix. Felix is the governor. You remember what God said in Acts chapter 9? God said in Acts chapter 9, Look, Paul is going to be a chosen vessel of mine. He's going to go to the children of Israel. And he's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings. And I will show him all the things he will suffer for my name's sake. And God's providential care is with him. God's power. You have three things to overcome the trial of discouragement. God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. And if you have eyes to see, you will see. God move. In amazing ways. 
Paul is now, his trials are all going to turn into a Gentile court standing before Romans. He's going to give his testimony and preach the gospel before Felix the governor. He's going to give his testimony and preach the gospel to King Agrippa. He's going to give his testimony and preach the gospel to Nero. We know from history that Nero's wife is going to get saved as a result of Paul's ministry. We know that Nero's wife's mother gets saved as a result of Paul's ministry. We know that Paul talks about many within the house of Caesar who are saved. We also know from history that Nero killed every one of them. But it didn't stop him from going. He had a love to tell people. He wanted to share. And everywhere he went, God gave him what he needed to overcome what was before him. You got a burden on your heart, something you want to share with somebody. You let God give you the power you need to do it. And don't wait. Tomorrow might be the phone call you dread. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Amen? This morning we have an opportunity for the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you how we do the Lord's Supper. If you haven't been here on a Sunday morning with us when we do it, uh, we're going to enter into a time of worship. And during that time of worship, we just invite you to seek the Lord. If that's what's going on in your life, if you need that, that empowerment from God, that touch from God to, to anoint you, to guide you, to touch you, to do this thing that God wants to, to do in your life, then I'd encourage you to seek His face, to come before Him, to tell Him, Lord, I need to know You're here with me, His presence. I need to hold on to Your promises. I need to be empowered by Your power so that I can do the things You want me to do. Paul said that the Lord's Supper, there is power in the Lord's Supper. But we want to take the Lord's Supper with a right heart. That means making our heart right. So we have an opportunity. As we sing a song, as the worship team comes up and prepares, we're going to enter into a time of worship. And I just invite you to... To go before the Lord and make your heart right. When your heart is right, come on up. The body and the blood is up front. The, the bread, speaking of the broken body of Christ, broken for us. The cup, speaking of the blood of Christ, shed for the remission of our sins. I'm going to ask anybody who's a part of prayer ministry or, or elders to be available up front for people to pray with. If you need to pray with somebody, someone will be up here to pray with you so that... You can have an opportunity to pray and then receive the Lord's Supper. We're just going to... we got a lot of stuff to do today, I know. Preacher talks forever, I know. But it's one song. To just focus on the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you. Come up to the table and receive the Lord's Supper with the right attitude. And allow God to empower you for what you have lying before you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just pray that you would meet us in this place. God, as we come before you in an attitude of worship, we pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would move. God, for those who are convicted of sin, Lord, I just pray that they would repent and lay it out before you and receive forgiveness. God, I pray for those who need to know that you're with them, that your presence is here. Lord, that you would show them your presence. God, for those who are in need of your promises for encouragement. I pray, Lord, that your promises would be revealed to them, for they are on every page in Scripture. And, Lord, I pray, God, your power will be evident in their life, just like it was in Paul's. And this stuff didn't happen every day. But it all lined up as Paul finds his way on a 
all-expense-paid journey to Rome, preaching to everybody who will listen all along the way, all for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that would be our heart as we look toward you. In Jesus' name.